0: Well, last Sunday, as I said earlier during the announcements, I began a series of sermons on the doctrines of grace. And I mentioned earlier that there is a bulletin insert in your bulletin today that gives an overview of the doctrines of grace. These doctrines focus on the central question how can a person be saved? Which, as I said last Sunday, in my mind is the most important question that any of us could ask How may I be saved? The question then leads to other questions, such as Does God save sinners or do we save ourselves? Does God do part of the work of salvation and we do the rest? Or, does God save us, as the Reformers taught, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Well, the answer to that question, as I taught last Sunday, is yes. God is absolutely sovereign over all of his creation. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over human beings. And he is sovereign over salvation, over who is saved, when, and how we are saved. We're going to hear a testimony a little later of our dear Nina, who got saved when she was in third grade. Praise God. God didn't see fit to save me until the summer after eighth grade. I wish I'd gotten saved in third grade. I would have gotten in a lot less trouble. It was God's will for me to be saved in the summer of 1970. Yes, that's right, 52 years ago. I know, I'm old. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. And we learned last Sunday how the Synod of Dort met in Dordrecht, Holland in 1618 and 1619, they met in 154 sessions over a period of seven months to examine the teachings of Jacobus Arminius and his followers who insisted that human beings are not radically corrupted by sin, but instead have absolutely free will. They taught that any person could choose to believe in God or reject God of their own accord without any divine intervention whatsoever. They rejected the teachings of the Reformers regarding God's election, his predestination, God drawing sinners to salvation, and that Jesus died only for the sins of those chosen by the Father for salvation. They rejected those teachings. And so they drew up a protest document containing five points. And they presented it to the government in Holland. Well, the 111 members of the Synod of Dort, made up of clergy, pastors, seminary professors, after Months of very, very careful examination of the scriptures, they rejected as unbiblical all five points of the Arminian protest against the teachings of the Reformed churches. Then they published their findings on these five points in a document called the Canon of Dort. This document is often referred to as the five points of Calvinism even though John Calvin had died years prior to its being published, and so I prefer to refer to them as the doctrines of grace. Now, foundational to our understanding of salvation is for us to understand the radical effects of sin upon human beings. Sin has resulted in spiritual death, which leaves us unable to save ourselves or even assist in our own salvation. In other words, dead means dead, and there's not a lot a dead person can do. So today we will focus on the first and the foundational point of the doctrines of grace, which is Total depravity, or as I prefer, radical depravity. I prefer radical depravity because total depravity makes it sound as though fallen human beings are as depraved as they could possibly be. Which is not always the case. Some are more depraved than others. Radical depravity refers to the effect of sin and corruption on the whole person. It's radical because it has affected every aspect of our being. It's affected the body, the soul, the mind, the will. The total or whole person is corrupted by sin. In fact, God's word teaches us that every one of us are born as sinners. Now, anyone who's raised a toddler knows this is true. But listen to what God's word says. David writes in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. R.C. Sproul likes to say, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Here, is this, here he is stating the biblical truth that every one of us are born with a sin nature. And our acts of sin flow out of that corrupted nature. But where did this corrupted sin nature come from? Why does all mankind suffer from this condition that we call radical depravity? Well, the source of our sin nature and the radical depravity we suffer from is found in the fall, in the sin of Adam and Eve. As Pastor Don likes to say, never underestimate the impact of the fall. The fall resulted in what we call original sin. The doctrine of original sin doesn't simply refer to that first sin committed by Adam and Eve, but it also refers to the effects, the results of that first sin, which continue to this very The Bible's teaching about sin begins with the story of the fall of Adam and Eve recorded in Genesis 3. And you know this story. There we see that Eve and then Adam were led to doubt the goodness of God, doubt his word, and finally to disobey God in their desire to become like God it's a good thing we don't have that problem today in the world right that there's nobody that wants to be in control of their own destiny it's a good thing we don't have that today right the consequences that followed their sin were exactly what God had warned when he told Adam quote you are free to eat from any tree in the garden But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that is exactly what happened. They ate of that tree and sin and death entered into the human race. Now we recognize that God's warning was not merely about physical death. But it included spiritual death as well. Now, it's true that from the time they ate of that tree, they began to die physically. And physical death became a certainty. You want to know if the effects of original sin are still upon us? All you have to do is to know that every single person dies. And that's a result of original sin. But more importantly, and more immediately, Adam and Eve suffered spiritual death immediately upon committing that first sin. And they showed their newly acquired spiritual depravity by running away from God and attempting to hide from God. Think about that. They did not run to God, but they ran away from God. They did not seek God's love and forgiveness. They sought to hide their sin and hide themselves from God. In other words, they were already suffering the results of the radical depravity of sin. And we've been suffering those results ever since. God had made them without sin. Therefore, they were free from the dominion of sin and they were free to choose to sin or not to sin. They had absolute free will. Their will was not yet under bondage to sin. But through their fall, they brought spiritual death and bondage upon themselves and upon the entire human race. All the descendants of Adam are born with a sin nature. And although they have a free will, although we have the freedom to make choices, our will is in bondage to our sin nature. The Westminster Confession of Faith gives a clear, concise statement of this doctrine. It says this, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able, by his own ability, to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto. It's pretty clear. As a result of Adam's sin, all human beings are born sinners and they are born spiritually dead. Therefore, if they are to be saved and to become God's people once again, they must be born again or spiritually resurrected by the Spirit of God. The imputation of sin upon all human beings is clearly seen in scripture. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start there, looking at what God's word says about the human condition. Because remember, it's not what you and I think that really matters. If you ask most people Are you a good person? They are going to say yes. And in fact, surveys have been taken. Even among evangelical Christians, the question is asked, are people born basically good? And the majority answer that question, yes. So our human perspective is we are good people. And our friends are good people. And our family are good people. But what is God's perspective? That's what really matters. And he tells us. Look at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men and women, by the way, ladies, because all sinned at verse 14 Death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who is to come Look at verse 16 And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The Apostle Paul here is laying out for us in very clear, very easy to understand terms that the effect of original sin has been passed on to every descendant of Adam. Every one of us in this room Right now we're born sinners having a sin nature and being spiritually dead dead in our sin and that rendered us unable to reach out to God for salvation because we had no desire to do so. Just as Adam and Eve had no desire to see God once they had sinned. They wanted to run from God. They wanted to hide from God. And that is the human condition as we are born. That's what we're born into. We are born with what the theologians call spiritual inability. Inability. We're born spiritually blind, even though we're physically alive. We're born with a spiritual inability, the inability to choose God or to please God. In fact, let's look at how our natural spiritual condition is described by God in His Holy Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's only going to be a few pages to your right. Ephesians chapter 2 we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Again, this is God's perspective on humanity. Not humanity's perspective on, it, on itself. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. This is what God says about us. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead... being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Remember, Paul is writing this to the church. He's writing this to a group not that much different than us. Those that have believed and trusted in Christ as their savior. But he's going back and talking about what they were like before they were saved by grace. Including himself. Note that he he includes himself in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. So Paul is reinforcing this idea that in order for us to be saved the spirit must regenerate us from our fallen condition. The spirit must cause us to be born again, to be made alive spiritually. He uses the image of being made alive. And this is in stark contrast to our natural condition of being dead in our trespasses and sins. The sinner is not physically dead, or he couldn't go on sinning. But he is spiritually dead. And all of us, again, at one time or another, that was our state. And most of us can remember that pretty well. I know I can. I was blind spiritually. And I was captive to my own passions, my own lusts for 13 years. Paul then describes these spiritually dead people as walking or living, how? According to their sin nature, according to the ways of this world, according to the plan of Satan, and they are described by God as sons or daughters of disobedience, as children of wrath, children deserving the wrath of God, who is their creator, who is their Lord. Now, notice that. As sinners, we deserved the wrath of God due for our sins. In fact, the more we sinned, the more we stored up God's wrath that was due towards us. That's what we deserved. You know, don't ever say, I only want what's coming to me. (laughs) Or I only want what I deserve. No, you don't. Not from God. You want what you do not deserve from God, which is grace, which is mercy, which is forgiveness. Note here that Paul states that human beings are by nature children of wrath, in verse 3. Again, he's speaking of human nature. Not certain individuals, but all of humanity. All of us are born with a fallen sinful nature, which then prevents us from choosing God or doing anything which is pleasing before God. We simply will not choose to please and honor God because we don't want to. That's the problem. We don't have the want to. To please and honor God. Is this the universal condition of all mankind? Yes, according to God, according to his word. And this is clearly seen in the letter of Paul to the Romans. So turn back to Romans chapter 3 with me if you would. So two chapters before we were in Romans chapter 5. I love the book of Romans. Just love it. Romans chapter 3. Again, we see God's perspective on humanity here. In fact... Paul is quoting from God's word, things that God had previously said in the Old Testament, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So, uh, I don't know how many of you in here are Greeks uh, by heritage. But he's using Greeks there as a term for all non-Jews, okay? So whether we're descended from Irish or English or Scottish or, you know, Spanish, uh, we all fit into that Greeks category, okay? All, both Jews and and non-Jews, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Paul starts here by making a summary pronouncement that there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, righteousness is a legal term. It denotes our standing before God's justice. God's standard for righteousness, according to scripture, is perfect obedience, sinless perfection. So there is not one single person who can be considered righteous before God based on their own merit. All have sinned and fall short of God's perfect glory. So unless we're justified by faith in Christ, we have no hope of standing before God. Having stated that human beings are unrighteous, he then describes four aspects of our fallen nature. I just want to touch on these briefly. First, in verse 11, he says, No one understands. Now, why is that? It is because sin has corrupted our thinking in such a way that people lack the ability to understand the truth about themselves, about God, and about the world. This is exactly why Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not, even a, it's not a matter of entering the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. You can't see it. I remember um, I had friends in school. I remember back in first and second grade, we lived next door to a family in Texas uh, that went to church every week. They were Baptists. And I remember going uh, going to church with them a couple of times. I didn't get it. I mean, I was in first and second grade, so I don't know how much you get in first and second grade, but I couldn't see any reason to go to church. And then later in 6th, 7th grade, we lived across the street from a family that went to a church in our community. And they took me there a couple of times. And I came home and I basically told my mother, I think those people are crazy. You know, they're standing up, they're singing, they're raising their hands, they're clapping. I said, I don't want any of that. When I was in 6th and 7th grade, I used to go to a, a, a thing called Good News Club after church one day a week. And there they would present the gospel. And every week I would go forward to receive Christ. And I'd pray the sinner's prayer. Not because I wanted anything to do with Christ, but because Sister Herleman said, if you don't receive Christ, when you die, you're going to go to hell. Well, I didn't want to go to hell. Even in sixth grade, I knew that heaven is better than hell, right? But it's not because I wanted Jesus or I wanted to submit to God. I just wanted what, was, what I thought was best for me. I could not see. I could not understand what God has done. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Until God saves us out of our radically depraved state, we're blind to the reality of God and his glory. We're blind to his goodness and righteousness. And in fact, we're blind to our own need. Thus, spiritual inability speaks to our inability to see God, to hear God, to understand God, or even our need for God. Another verse where Paul states this clearly is in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where he says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or her. They are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The key statement here is not merely that man does not accept the truth of God, but that a person in their sin nature is not able to receive the things of God. So at the heart of sinful mankind's radical depravity is their spiritual inability to accept the gospel. Now being rooted in spiritual ignorance, man's depravity manifests itself instead in idolatry. He goes on in verse 11 to say, no one seeks for God. In their quest for meaning, for truth, for some form of salvation, fallen mankind will turn everywhere except to God. They will turn to all manner of man-made religions... They will turn to humanistic philosophies or to scientific theories in a quest to find the meaning of life from any source except from God, their creator. Think of the millions upon millions of dollars that are being spent by our government in a search for the origins of the universe. Right? We have massive complexes of satellite dishes trying to find evidence of life somewhere in the universe so that we can figure out how it all began. I'll tell you what, if they paid me, I'd tell them. We'll look to any other source except God. As John Calvin famously said, man's heart is an idle factory. We'll create any other means. Now this does not mean that people don't desire the blessings that come from God, for they most certainly do. Man is seeking peace, prosperity, joy, and meaning. Depraved humans are always glad for God's good gifts just as long as they don't have to deal with God Himself. No one seeks for God, says Paul. And listen to me, that delivers a death blow. To every scheme of salvation that relies on man taking the initiative in receiving the gospel. I've said this many, many times. The worst ever Christian bumper sticker I found Jesus. Was he lost? Did he need you to find him? No, what that bumper sticker should say is, Jesus found me. Amen? I was not looking for Jesus. I was not looking for God. But at the appointed time, God found me. Not that I was lost. From him, he knew exactly where I was, but I was lost in my sin and blind to him. No one seeks for God. Third, Paul tells us, and this is an astounding statement, no one does good, not even one. Now this flies in the face of what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that we can change the world through our good deeds. We are told that we can make a difference. We can choose to do good things that will result in great rewards. And we are told, as I said earlier, that people are good by nature. And therefore, most people do good things. But here's the problem with all of that. Everything we do in our fallen state is tainted by our sin nature. For God not only judges our actions, but also our motives. He knows the intentions of our heart. He knows the reasons behind the so-called good that people do. He knows that most good deeds are actually done with wrong motives. And chiefly, it's a self-centered desire for praise for profit, for fame, for glory, for recognition, or just to feel good about ourselves. Self-centered acts. And these things are not good in the sight of God because they are not done to glorify Him, which remembers the reason for which we were created. To glorify him, not to glorify ourselves. Lastly, in verse 18, Paul writes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fallen mankind refuses to acknowledge God as their creator, as their king, as their ruler. They do not fear his wrath or judgment. They do not fear to disobey or simply ignore him. Man wants to be their own God, even as Adam and Eve did. We do not, in our fallen sinful state, recognize the dangers that we face if we are to continue on that path. We will never choose to reverence God unless God changes our sinful heart and gives us a new nature, releasing us from our bondage to sin. So, these passages of Scripture, along with many others, clearly teach what we call the bondage of the will. Men and women think they have the freedom to choose whatever they want to choose. When in fact, their will, their freedom to choose, is in bondage to their sin nature. Because of our radical depravity, we lack the desire or power to choose God or to do His will. With sin corrupting every part of our being, we are no more able to reach out to God Than a blind man can will himself to see or a deaf person can will themselves to hear. This is pretty heavy stuff. So what's the benefit of learning about the doctrine of radical depravity? Well, let me mention just three. Three of the benefits of this doctrine. And we'll end on a good note. First, it helps us to know and understand what is wrong with us and what is wrong with the world around us. It reveals what is behind all the evil and lawlessness we see in the world and in our own hearts. It helps by giving us a proper perspective on who we are in the eyes of God and how foolish it is to think that the answers to the problems in this world can be found in men and women who are themselves enslaved to their own sin nature. It shows us that the answers to what is wrong in this world must come from outside of this world. It must come from God. Second, this doctrine helps us to truly appreciate what God has done to save us from the depths of our own radical depravity. The only way to see the goodness, the greatness of the gospel is to see the greatness of our need. Until we see and embrace the fact that we are great sinners we will not see the need to trust in Jesus as our Savior. But once our eyes are opened by the Spirit of God to our own spiritual depravity, we are then made ready and willing to confess our sin and to cry out for God's mercy, grace, and for the salvation that He has provided through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. You will not take medication for a condition that you do not think you have. You know, every year I go for my annual checkup at Kaiser. We have a wonderful doctor, you know, and she runs tests on us periodically and, you know, checks to make sure all our vaccinations are up to date and such. And if I were to go in there and she were to say to me, Oh, Steve, All your tests came back great. You have no medical problems. But listen, I'm giving you this prescription for this very powerful medication. It's going to have a lot of side effects, but I want you to start taking it immediately. Right? I would say, what? What are you talking about? What aren't you telling me? Right? You're not going to take a medication if you don't think there's anything wrong with you. Exactly. You're not going to come to the cross and put your faith and trust in Jesus if you don't understand your need. That you are a radical sinner deserving the wrath of God. And the only answer for that is the medication of being saved by God's grace. Well, the good news is this. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, our heart, our nature is changed. Our blinded eyes are opened and we are given the gift of saving faith and we are finally able to see and receive the gift of salvation through trusting in Christ. We are then finally able to understand what it means when the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mentioned earlier that even at 11 years old, I knew I didn't want to go to hell. And I got to tell you something. I believe the Holy Spirit was already working in my life. Because I knew I was a sinner. At 10 or 11 years old, I was a terrible sinner. I know that's hard to believe. We have such lovely children in our church, but I was not one of them. No, I'm not, I'm not being funny here, I was a terrible sinner now if you'd asked my mother she would have said oh he's a perfect child because she didn't know but I knew and I needed salvation but it's not something I wanted I didn't want to put myself under God's control but you know what by God's grace he brought me to my knees he changed my heart he caused me to be born again he gave me saving faith so that I would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved God gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him and trusts in him for salvation should not perish in other words be consigned to everlasting darkness, but instead have eternal life. This is the gospel of God's grace. This is the good news, folks, that there is a medicine that God has provided that will save us from the plague of sin that we are infected by. And so this is a great blessing to understand our need. Amen? And third, it helps us to understand the continuing struggle against sin that we still experience as we now seek to live for God. I'd like to stand before you today and say, oh, sinning is in my past, right? I'm a new creature in Christ. I no longer sin, but I would be sinning if I said that I would be lying to you and you know it because we're all experiencing still the struggle against the sin that is in our flesh now we've been delivered from bondage to sin but we still struggle against our old sin nature that is still evident in our flesh we can now freely choose to sin or not sin but that is still a struggle for us And understanding the source of this struggle helps us to have a proper perspective. The doctrines of grace assure us that Jesus has already paid the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We're also assured that all of our struggles against sin cannot separate us. From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That in fact, God will help us in our weaknesses. And his spirit will continue to work in us to sanctify us. Helping us to become more and more like Jesus. And we are also assured that one day we will be delivered from this struggle against our own sin nature. Amen? When Jesus returns and we are finally fully delivered from this body of flesh and receive a glorified body in which no sin dwells. Instead of radical depravity, we will then be recipients of radical righteousness. And we will forever be in unbroken fellowship with our Lord. The doctrine of radical depravity, the view from God's perspective of the state of fallen mankind and its total inability to seek after God or the things of God, establishes the foundation for the other four doctrines of grace that we will hear preached over the coming weeks. Next week, we'll look at the doctrine of unconditional election, which means God, who is sovereign, Chooses whom he will save. And our initial reaction to that is that's not fair. <laughs> and that reveals our sin nature because we tend to judge according to our own perspective rather than accepting God as God. As sovereign over all things. This morning, we get to celebrate in a few minutes the baptism of one individual who was dead in her trespasses and sins, and God made her alive together with Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity. For us to listen to what your word has to say about the spiritual condition that we were born into, that you have delivered us from through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Father God, for sending your Son to live the perfect sinless life that we could not live, to earn for us perfect righteousness and then who laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sins, which are many. And you, Father, poured out the wrath that had been stored up for our sins, past, present, and future. You poured that wrath out upon your own son. He paid the penalty for us. And in his resurrection, it was demonstrated that it was finished. The price was paid. And we are now the recipients credited with his righteousness. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. But Lord, we lift up any who are here today that have not yet experienced your saving grace We pray, Father God, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Draw them by your spirit. Open their blind eyes that they might see their need and they might see the answer to their need is in your son, Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we pray that you'll also help us to continue to worship you this morning. And we pray for your blessing on the baptism that is coming. We give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as we're getting ready for the baptism, would you stand? We're going to close in one more song. Nothing less than